0: Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Every student at West Coast would do well to remain single. Every student at West Coast would do well to remain single. Now, this is not a knee-jerk reaction to the message yesterday. <laughs> On courting. My soul, courting. What kind of a word is that? You know, these millennials just aren't in touch with anybody anymore. I mean, we are Gen Zers. Hoarding. The word is collaboration. I mean, get with the program, Brother Shepherd. You're just out of touch. Singleness is not substandard. Singleness is not satanic. Singleness is not selfish. Singleness is not sinfulness. Singleness is not stupidity. Singleness is superior. Singleness is spiritual. Singleness is sacred. I am not speaking of your marital status, but I am speaking of your purpose in life. Staying single in purpose is highly recommended by God. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Are you willing to be that single person that God is looking for? I want you to see three very important aspects to being that kind of single That person that God can and desires to use in a great way. I notice, first of all, that we must have a single master. A single master. Look at it again in verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. We see that thought again in verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, not unto men. Now, the context of this, he's giving instruction to those of us that work for someone else. The context of the passage is talking about how we are to respond in a a work environment or a a servant-master environment, or as we would say, an employee-employer environment. That's the context here. But he's telling us in that context that your master is not really that boss or, or that ministry leader, but rather your master is Christ. And what you do ought to be unto Him. While you may get paid by someone here on earth, and you might uh, be accountable to somebody in the ministry, yet ultimately our master is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because no man can serve two masters. Either he'll love the one and hate the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. Paul said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. So who are we really serving? Who are we really living for? Oh, the Apostle Paul made no doubt about that in his writing. He said that I may know him. And the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. You know, our Master, God Himself, our Master, Jesus Christ, is worth following. He is the right kind of Master. In fact, our Master is holy. He's not deceptive. He's not dishonest. He's not divisive. He's not destructive. I think we have to be careful because we live in a culture where we see a lot of people in a position of authority that if we watch them long enough or we're around them a little bit, we discover that sometimes they say one thing and do something else, but that's not true of our God. That's not true of our Master. Our Master is holy. The Bible says back in Exodus 15 and verse 11, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? You see, there were lots of gods at the time of the children of Israel. There were lots of people serving different gods, but they had to come back to the fact that there's no God like our God. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a righteous God. Our God is a perfect God. Uh, Psalm 99 and verse 9 exhorts us to worship toward His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. John the Revelator said in chapter 15 and verse 4, Who shall not fear Thee, O Lord? Who shall not glorify Thy name? For Thou only art holy. Have you discovered the holiness of God? Sometimes it takes a moment, it takes maybe even a tragedy, it takes a difficult time, it it takes sometimes a trial in our life, it takes something kind of out of the blue to get us to focus once again on our God. The Bible says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it were the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twenty covered his face, and with twenty covered his feet, and with twenty did fly. And one cried unto another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Oh, listen, when you come to a a moment in your life where all you can do is look to God, you're going to discover that he is a holy master. He is the rock. His work is perfect. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Our God is worth following. Our master is worth getting behind. Why? Because he is holy, but our master is also honest. Again, we sometimes become skeptical of authority. We sometimes doubt authority, we, we've been uh, fooled enough times, we've been deceived enough times by some people that our trust is eroded, but, but we've got to come back to the fact that we can trust our God. We can follow our God. Why? Because He's honest. Between my freshman and sophomore year in college, I went to work on a farm in northern Wisconsin pastor had come to chapel one day and he said, I'm starting a church. And he said, I'm the only one really that can do any of the work. He said, my wife tries to help, but we have several children and we're trying to get this church started. And he said, I'd love to have a young man come this summer and, and just be a help to me in any way that he could. And I've got a farmer in my church that would hire you to work on his farm. And then on the weekends, you could help me with the services, maybe lead some singing or maybe help with the young people or, you know, just do whatever I needed you to do. And, and well, I had been raised on a farm and when I went to college, my dad sold the farm and, and so I, I knew something about farming. And I thought, well, I could do that job and sounds like a great opportunity to be a part of a new church. And so I went and talked to the pastor and basically I got hired sight unseen. I made my way up to that farm and I went to work for Everett Hedinger. He had a huge farm. And uh, he was in way over his head. We got up every morning at 4 o'clock, and oftentimes we didn't go to bed till after midnight. I mean, we had to milk those cows and feed the livestock, and he had built these barns and gotten all, these, all this cattle, and he just couldn't handle it. And it was a lot of work. We worked hard. And he told me, he said, now, I don't really have any cash to to pay you every week, but he said, I got these four calves. And he said, these calves are yours. And he said, at the end of the summer, we're going to sell them. And whatever we get for them is going to be yours. He said, I'm I'm guessing we'll get $400. Well, $400. My my school bill that next semester is going to be $800. Room, board, and tuition. Don't you wish you were old? 800 bucks. So in that summer, I was going to make half of what I needed to pay my school bill that fall. And so I was pretty excited about that. I mean, I took good care of those calves. (laughs) The other ones I didn't really care too much about, but those calves, boy, they got fed every day. I wanted them to bring a good price. you know. I took care of those calves. Boy, we worked and his wife was a great cook. I got good meals out of it through the summer. She made the best Swedish pancakes I've ever eaten in my life. And I worked on that farm, and I worked in that church. The end of the summer came, and Everett Hedinger changed his mind. He kept those calves. And I left for school with nothing. Zero. I thought, how do you like that? I'm going to be honest with you. I remember going back to school thinking, is everybody like that? I mean, can I trust the president of the school? I mean, he says things, does he mean it? If we're not careful, we can develop that same attitude toward God. Because we get to watch people and we get to see the inconsistencies of people and sometimes we think, well, everybody's like that. Everybody's dishonest and everybody is is, is impure in some way. But our God is holy. Our God is honest. And our God is our helper. He's our helper. He's worth serving because he doesn't just ask us to get involved with him, but he's going to get involved with us. I love Matthew chapter 11 where he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That word yoke there refers to a specific eastern yoke. It was a yoke for two animals. There are lots of different types of harnesses and yokes that were used in Bible days and still today. Sometimes you go to a parade and you see a a wagon being drawn by some horses. And there might be two horses, there might be four horses, there might be eight horses. There are different types of, of harnessing and different types of yokes. But this particular word refers to an eastern yoke, which always had a place for two. And notice he says, take my yoke upon you. What's he saying? I'm getting in with you. You're getting in with me, and we're going to pull together. God's not asking you to just go out there and do something for him. He's not asking you, you know, here's your education, here's your diploma, go do something for me. No, God's going with you. He's worth serving. He's worth following. Why? Because He's our helper. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Fear not. I am with thee. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I'll help thee. I'll uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Faithful is He that calleth you, who also will do it. When we serve Jesus Christ, He gives us a promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He's our helper. And so, he's a master that's worth following. We need a single master. But then, I see here also in this passage that we need a single mind. In verse 6, he says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God, From the heart, doing the will of God from the heart. A single mind. Is your mind on one purpose, the will of God? I find that when we're young, we kind of want to do everything. We kind of want to try everything. We, we want to experiment with this and, and maybe give a shot at this. And and, and and it bleeds over into all of our thinking to where, you know, I think I'll do this for a while or maybe I'll try this. I'll, I'll, I'll go to this college for a while. Maybe I'll try this one for a while. I'll study this for a while. Maybe I'll change over to this later. Maybe I'll maybe I'll go in the military. Maybe I'll go to college. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll stay home and work. Maybe I'll Maybe I'll get married. Maybe I'll stay married for a while. Maybe I'll get divorced. You know, we have this idea today that We've got this periphery of things we want to do. God says, I need you to have a single mind. The will of God. What is the will of God? And what an example Jesus Christ was of this, where he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The disciples got distracted by their own hunger. They got distracted by what was available in town. They were were unfocused on the woman at the well there who needed Christ. But when, when they came back with the food and tried to encourage Jesus to eat, He said, my meat, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. I love what Jesus said in John 8, verse 29. He said, I do always the things that please Him. I remember reading that verse probably 20 years ago in my office, it was on a Monday night and I had a devotional prepared for one of the dorms. In those days, I did dorm devotions in a different dorm every night. And my wife did a different devotion or in a different girls dorm every night. We, we did dorm devotions in the dorms, one every night. And, and I had prepared a devotion for that week and I was, I was looking at it in my office, going over it for the last time, and I thought, this is lame. I don't like this. I'm not even excited about this devotional. How am I gonna preach it? How am I gonna deliver it if I don't, li- if I don't like it? And it bothered me. I had prepared it. At the time I prepared it, I thought, this is what we need, but when I got ready to deliver it, it just, it just, it just wasn't right. And it was about It was about 10 minutes to 10. Devotions were 10. And I believe I was going over to the the Hudson Hall across the road to give that devotional. And I was sitting there in my office thinking, I don't want to preach this. And I kind of took my Bible and I I just kind of flipped it open and it, it landed in John 8. And I read that verse, John 8, 29. I do always the things that please him. And the thought hit me. Can I say that about today? Did I do everything today to please Him? I'm gonna tell you something. I haven't lived that day yet. I'd like to think that maybe one day before I die, I could pillow my head and say, I did everything today to please Him. But I'm gonna be honest with you. So far, I pillow my head and I think, no. I did that for me. I did that for them. I did that because everybody was expecting that. I, I didn't do everything to please him. But Jesus could say that. He was focused on that one purpose. The will of God for his life. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? They were saying, Jesus, don't go up to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. They're, 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 They're mad at you. And Jesus said, no, I'm going. Why? Because I have a purpose. I'm going there to die. I'm going there to give my life. I'm going there to be the Savior. And he wasn't going to be detoured. He wasn't going to be distracted from that purpose. I love what Paul says about Jesus. I think it's the greatest compliment given to Christ or to any person in the entire Bible where it says in Romans 15 and verse 3, even Christ pleased not himself. Never one day, never one moment did Jesus Christ step out of the will of his Father and do his own thing. Now we realize he was God. We realize he was perfect. And yet what a model, what an example for us to be single-minded. Somehow the apostle Paul grabbed hold of that thought and he said, none of these things move me. There were a lot of things that could have moved him, the trials, the temptations, maybe the applause or, or the, 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 the resume that he had, or perhaps making money, building tents or whatever. Paul could have gotten sidetracked, but he said, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel, the grace of God. Young person, get in your mind and heart like the psalmist, I don't. Delight to do thy will, O God. There's no better life than the will of God. To be single-minded. To not be distracted by, I I, I could do this, or maybe I'll do this, or this would be fun, or this would be exciting. Listen, there is nothing exciting apart from the will of God. It's eternal. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And I love what Paul said in Romans 12 about the will of God. He said, Be not conformed in verse 2 of chapter 12 to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Good, acceptable, perfect. You know, I looked those words up. And the Bible says there that God's will is profitable. The word good means profitable. You know what, young people? When you do the will of God, you won't starve. God's going to take care of you. It's profitable. Oh, it's profitable eternally, yes. But you're not going to starve here either. God's going to take care of you. My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. he got a whole lot more riches than the bank. He's got more riches than your rich uncle. He's got more riches than any company you can work for. And David said, I've been young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor seed begging bread. The will of God is profitable, but it's also Pleasant. Good, acceptable. That word acceptable has in its root pleasantness, joy. The will of God is pleasant. The songwriter said there's joy in serving Jesus. And notice he didn't say there's joy in Jesus. He said there's joy in serving Jesus. Now, there is joy in Jesus. I don't debate that. There's joy when you get saved. There's joy when you come to know Christ. But the songwriter said there's joy in serving Jesus. And I believe that's what Jesus was communicating in John 13 and verse 17 when he said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. In other words, you can know the Bible and be perfectly miserable. The higher critics know the Bible. They don't know Christ. I mean, there's there's heretics that know the Bible. There's atheists that know the Bible. They know where all the problems in the Bible are. They, were, they know where all the so-called discrepancies are. They, they've studied the Bible. They've read the Bible. But there's no joy in their life. Why? Because they're not obeying the Word of God. Happy is the people that is in such a case, yea, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Happy is the man uh, that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope the Lord is. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding, for the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies, and all the things that thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness. Her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every man that retaineth her. Happy. The word blessed is found 70 times in the book of Psalms. It's the first word in the Psalm. Psalm 1, blessed. 70 times. I'm told that 69 of those times, it could literally be translated happy. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, but whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That's the life, young people. It's the profitable life. It's the pleasant life. And then it's the perfect life. God's will is Perfect. Good, acceptable, perfect. And that word perfect there means complete. it's, It's everything that we need. You are fulfilled in that perfect, complete will of God. We are complete in Him. He is our all and in all. Do you have a single mind? Or are you starting to think maybe there's something better than the will of God? Maybe there's something just different than the will of God. Maybe there's something easier than the will of God. Maybe there's something that won't cost as much. Are you single-minded? When I was about 30 years old, I was in a church, and I didn't have life insurance. and It always bothered me that I didn't. I I just never felt I could afford to buy life insurance. I was young. I wasn't going to die. So why do I need life insurance, right? And so, every time I'd get on an airplane to fly somewhere, as the plane would take off, God would convict me. He'd say, you know, this thing goes down, your wife's got nothing, because you're an idiot. I'd say, you're right. When I get home, I'll get some life insurance. I'd get home, I'd forget about it until I took another plane ride. <laughs> the Lord would say, you know what? <laughs> if this plane goes down. And I went through that for about two years. I'm a slow learner. And so finally one day I was in a church and I met this guy who sold life insurance. And he asked me after service one day, he said, Brother I guess do you have any life insurance? I said, no. He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an agent. He said, I'd like to show you what we have to offer. It was a Christian company and, and uh, he, he wanted to show it to me. And I said, well, I, okay. And so we got together one day, the pastor went with us, we went to lunch and he began to explain this, this life insurance that he had. And it was, it was one of these diversified deals where you paid in a certain amount every month and then your money got diversified so that if one area of the market crashed, you'd still have some money in another area. Like some of the money went into stocks and some went into bonds and some went into you know, a, an annuity or something. I don't, I don't remember it all. I don't really understand that kind of stuff that much. But it was diversified. So now I have this stock. I am a, I have stock. And I was really excited about that. And, and, and you, could, you could get a paper every day and you could look to see how your stock was doing. And so every day, I would, I, the first, first thing I'd get my devotions done, I'd try to find a paper. I'd try to go somewhere, buy a paper. And I'd, I'd look up my stock. And it, would, it had gone up like like two-tenths of a cent, you know. I spent 50 cents on the paper to find out I'd just made two-tenths of a penny, you know, on my stock. And I was really excited about that. And then when it would go down, I'd be depressed. Oh, man, it went down. And I followed that crazy stock for like two years. And I was focused on that crazy stock market. I mean, I was driven to buy a paper every day to see how my stock was doing. I mean, like I had like whole $20 in there, you know, like it's really going to provide my retirement or something. And finally, I I, I thought one day, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. I am more focused on the stock market than I'm on my sermons. I sold that stock. I got rid of it. Didn't make a dime. Why? Because I realized I was no longer single-minded. Is your mind single? We have a single master. We have a single mind. And then finally, he exhorts us to have a single motive. In verse 6, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ. In verse 8, he says, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. We have a single motive to please God. And we can't please God with multiple masters. We can't please God with multiple motives. And he's reminded us here, we've got to have a single mind, a single master, a single motive. And we're to have that single motive to please God regardless of our part. He says, Whatsoever good thing any man doeth. I realize that now when you're in college, you don't feel sometimes like you have much of a part in what God's doing. You might even use the phrase, I'm just a college student. You might say about your ministry, I just work on a bus. I just help in a Sunday school class. I just hang out at Cactus Kids and do whatever they tell me to do. And we look at our part as being perhaps insignificant. But here he says, Whatsoever good thing any man doeth. Regardless of our part, our motive is to please God. Whether we're asked to preach the sermon on resurrection morning at a church... Or whether we're asked to hang a flyer on the door to invite somebody to come. It doesn't matter our part. In ministry, we kind of get hung up on flow charts. And, and that's a necessary evil, I like to call it. You have to have accountability. You have to have structure in any organization. And God has given instruction with respect to the government and the home and, and, and the church. And, and there's, there's an alignment that's very important in all of that. And, and a flow chart reflects that. In a church, you have, you have uh, Christ as the head of the church. You have the Bible as the authority for the church. But then you have the human authority of the pastor, the under-shepherd. He's the, he's the designated leader of the church by God. He's the under-shepherd. And under him you have deacons and, and, and maybe some staff. And, and then you have ministry positions, Sunday school teachers. You have, you have care group leaders. You have connection group leaders. You have, you have all these people. And, 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 and you put it all on a flow chart so that everybody knows you know, who to answer to or who to get information from or how to get word to somebody. And, and we live in that world of flow charts. And if we're not careful, we tend to look at things in kind of a, a vertical way. We, we look at the church, and at the top is the pastor, humanly. He's the under-shepherd. And then, then there's the deacons, and then there's maybe the staff, and, and then there's maybe some of these leadership positions. And, and we look at that that way, and, and we're down here somewhere. You know, we're kind of one of the troops. We're, we're just a helper in a class, or, 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 or we're just on a bus, or whatever. We're kind of down here someplace, and we look at this vertically, But can I remind you that one day when we stand before God, we're not going to stand before him like this. We're going to stand before him like this. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. You see, we all have a part. And we all ought to have a single motive That whether our part in our mind is big or small or somewhere in between, that our motive is to please God, regardless of our part, regardless of our position. He says in verse 8, whether ye be bond or free. Whether you're the slave owner, as would be the context here, or the slave. In our context, whether you're the employer or the employee, whether, whether you're the boss or whether you're the worker, whether, whether you're the bus captain or whether you're the, 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 the bus helper, it doesn't matter. Every part, every position to please God, whether it's a paid position or a volunteer position, whether it's at the top or at the bottom, whether it's a master, whether it's a servant, we all one day must answer a, as to whether we pleased God. The last book that I wrote honestly started about 20 years ago. I had an idea that I wanted to write a book about revival. I had never written a book 20 years ago, but I had an idea that I wanted to write about revival. And my idea came from another book whose author I knew well, a book entitled This Day in Baptist History. Some of you have perhaps seen that book. We saw it in our bookstore. Dr. Cummins, the author of that book, was, I guess, a friend. He certainly was a mentor much older than me, and I preached for him several times. He had over 10,000 volumes in his personal library on Baptist history. Think about that a minute. Amazingly red man. And he wrote that book, This Day in Baptist History. And the reason he wrote it was because he wanted people to be able to read Baptist history in a a layman's kind of a way. Baptist history can be boring to read. I mean, if you get Thomas Armitage or B.H. Carroll, you start reading three columns on a page, it, it, it gets tedious. And we're talking 800, 900 page books. So Baptist history can, can be a little bit tough. Well, Dr. Cummins, he had read all those things, but he, he, he wanted to put it in layman's terms where people could appreciate their Baptist heritage and Baptist distinctives and, and just bring it down to the, to the guy in the pew, so to speak. And so he wrote this book, This Day in Baptist History. And what he did was he took every day of the year and he wrote about something that happened on that day in Baptist history. In fact, he had so much research that he wrote the second book, on this day in Baptist history. He had, there's two volumes of it. And I had read those books, and I thought that it, it really makes Baptist history come alive. You understand some things that you, you enjoy reading, it's a devotional form. And I had this thought I'd like to do that about revival. I'd like to write a book because, again, revival history is, 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 is fun for people like me that are evangelists. But we're losing some of the interest in revival in America and we're, we're losing people for that cause. And I thought, if I could put some of the history into a devotional where people could read a little bit every day about something that happened on that day, I, I just thought that would be a good idea. So about 20 years ago, I started doing some research. In fact, when my daughter was in high school, she's 40 now. When she was in high school, I hired her to do some research. I actually paid her on the clock for looking up stuff that happened on this day. And, and so she did some research. And then it just—it was such a massive project that it just kind of kept getting put aside, put aside, put aside. And I'd work on a little bit, put it aside. And I'd, I'd read something, oh, that happened on that day. And I'd kind of file that and throw it in there and just forget about it. And I thought, this is never going to happen. And... Two years ago in August, we were at our staff orientation. And Pastor Chapel announced our theme for 2018. and The theme was Revive. Well, Brother Burt, Brother Nathan Burt, was aware of my tabled project. I had mentioned it in one of the evangelism classes, I guess, and he remembered that. And when Pastor announced that theme, Brother Bert came to me right after that session. He said, Brother Gatch, you've got to write that book. You've got to get that book. It'd be a perfect book for our theme. I said, well, yeah, but this is August, and, you know, January's coming pretty quick. And I, there, there's no way. There's no way. I mean, I've got maybe, I, at that time, I had about half the days researched and had some ideas for the day of what, we could, what I could write, you know, and I thought, you know, there, there's a long way to go. I mean, I've been working on it 20 years, but not every day. And, and I thought, there's no way I could get that done. He said, well, Gatch, I'd like to help you. I said, well, Nathan, you know, if you want to do some research, I'll give you what I've got. And, and you can look at some days that I don't have. And if you can come up with some things. And he said, Man, and he took that thing and just, he got excited about it. And uh, boy, within, by, by about the 1st of October, he had found something for every day. Some of it wasn't too exciting, but he found something for every day of the year. He filled all those holes that I had. And in the meantime, he had told Miss Bass, you know, the editor around here, about it. And she was excited about it. And pastor got word about it. And and so now I'm under this pressure to write all these devotionals. I mean, i got to take this information now and put it into devotional form. And, you know, in the middle of the semester, and I'm like, whoa, this is... And so I started working on that thing. And it was taking me, if I was really clicking, if my mind was really sharp if I was, you know, just really awake and had nothing else in my mind, I could write about three of those devotionals in an hour. Now, there's 365 days, so you do the math. I was discouraged. I like, think, this ain't going to happen by, I mean, it's got to go to print by November, you know, and this is already October. So I'm in a meeting in uh, North Carolina, and... I've got to get this done. I'm on a deadline. So that week, I literally stayed up every night all night and worked on that project. And by the time that meeting ended, I had written every day through the 30th of November. So I had one month left. I thought I got a flight home. I figured out how many hours of flight it was. I figured I could do six more, maybe nine, if the flight was delayed a little. And so I'm, Kelly was out and thinking, then I could turn that part in and I, they, they give me a little grace because I was on this deadline. So I get to Denver. I've got this layover. I'm working out the whole flight to Denver. I get to Denver. I got a layover. The plane is delayed. I'm saying, thank you, Lord. So I'm, I'm, I'm working there in the airport trying to pump out these last devotionals. When I was sitting there in that terminal, the the laptop started getting warm. And I thought that was a bit unusual, but it was on my lap, and I don't normally have it on my lap, and I thought, boy, it's getting kind of warm. So it was time to board the plane. I closed it up, turned it off, closed it up, got on the plane, and we took off, and they said, you can now use your electronic devices. So I pulled it out, flipped it up, hit the power button, nothing happened. Hit it again. <laughs> nothing happened. I shook it a little bit. <laughs> no, but nothing happened. I'm, I'm very computer literate, and so I began to shake it. <laughs> nothing happened. I, I powered it in. I, I thought, well, maybe the battery went down. I, I, I plugged it in and hit the button. Nothing. I thought, well, Lord just doesn't want me to work on it right now. I'm tired. I, I need to sleep on this flight, so I'll, do, I'll, I'll, I'll just get home, worry about tomorrow. Got back here on Monday, taught classes, went up there, got to get this done. Hit the computer, nothing happened. Over a series of hours, unable to get it to power on, we took it to Brother Francis. And he said, your hard drive has crashed. Hopefully you have everything backed up. I don't. He did a little more work, took it all apart, called a company. They said for $2,000 they could try to restore the hard drive. but There were no guarantees. Well, I had no backup. My book was gone. It's lost. So I called Nathan. And uh, he didn't take that news very well. I called Miss Bass. She said, well, can you rewrite it? I said, well, not today. (laughs) She told Pastor, he said, well, can you get a month's worth done by vision night? I said, well, I, I can try. Really, quite frankly, I didn't want to do it. I mean, your inspiration's gone. I mean, 20 years of work, I mean, it's, it's gone. How do you recreate that? But I created 30 days, they handed out a vision night, and I, I quite frankly thought that'd be the end of it, but people enjoyed it, and Ms. Bass, and my secretary, Nathan, they kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And so, over the next few months, I just kept hacking away at it, trying to remember what I'd written, and quite frankly, got it done, didn't get printed in time for leadership conference, came out the day after leadership conference. It just seemed like Satan fought every part of that. And I really didn't feel like I'd done a very good job the second time. I thought the book was a whole lot better the first time. I was disappointed. But it got published. And it's out there. And Monday morning at 5.45 a.m., I got this email. The subject, you must read this. I don't like those kind of emails. It usually means one of you is messed up. But Anyway, you must read this. Brother, as I sit here just trying to breathe through the tears, I have to share this with you. Yesterday morning, my daughter birthed my granddaughter, Molly, knowing Molly would not survive. She was born at 7.45 a.m. At approximately 8.30, we dedicated her to Jesus. At 8.45, she died and went quickly back home to Jesus. At around 9 a.m., the baby's father got a call that they were rushing his father to the same hospital with life-threatening bleeding on the brain. During all this, I texted the mother of one of my good friends, a retired state trooper colonel who was also dying of cancer, and found out that his mother had died, and that he was too sick to even attend the funeral. My son-in-law about that time asked me if I would do my granddaughter's funeral on Sunday afternoon. I'm trying to be the strength for my family, but this is so painful. I'm dying inside. I've been helping people for 30 years through tragedies like these, but all of a sudden I found myself with nothing more to give. I forced myself to do my daily devotions this morning with the thought that maybe it's time to step down because I'm the one who's supposed to be the one who stands strong, but I feel so insignificant. All I've been hanging on to is those three words, God is faithful. The devotional I'm doing right now is your book, Revival Today. I opened it to March 27th, and I read, you are not insignificant. Referring to the story of Gypsy Smith. And then I read these words He hasn't given up his plan to use you. I've been weeping ever since. I have no idea when you wrote this book. He has no idea I wrote it twice. <laughs> but God had you write this day's devotion for me. Our great God is faithful. One hour ago, I was saying, what is it gonna take for me to believe that statement? Brother, you have no idea what you have done to help this worthless nobody like me to stay with it. I gotta go prepare for the funeral. Thank you so much. I read that at 545 and you can ask them. By six o'clock, I had emailed Nathan and Miss Bass and Miss Schmidt, and shared it with them. Why? Because they had just as much a part in that as anything I did. I'm telling you, young people, if you're in the will of God, whether you're sitting in a cubicle proofreading stuff, or whether you're preach in a sermon, it doesn't matter. When you have a single master and you have a single mind and you have a single motive, God is going to use you in your life. It's a good thing to be single.